0: Welcome to Get Amplified, the podcast for tech industry leaders and aspiring leaders covering topics from keeping up with the pace of change, staying fulfilled in your role and looking out for the well-being of your team and yourself. This podcast is brought to you by the Amplified Group. As always, we're virtual, so I'm in soggy bucks, actually quite sunny today. Vicky, I think you've changed it up and you're in deepest, darkest Manchester rather than deepest, darkest Oxfordshire.
1: I am, that's right, Sam. I'm, uh, I'm just about to go and do a client
0: workshop, so it's great to be able to do this virtually. Great stuff, and Shah, as always, you're in the Netherlands. I certainly am. Hi, Sam. Maybe you'll uh, surprise us one day with a a departure to sunnier climes or something like that. (laughs) Uh, So, Shah, do you want to um, tell us what we're uh, what we're here to look at today?
2: Yes, certainly. So our topic today is the importance of trust and empowerment as you go through the acquisition process. We'll also touch on the art of simplicity in the context of being acquired. And with its experiences in this area, I'm really delighted to introduce our guest today, James McNabb. So Vicky and I had the pleasure of working in James's team many years ago. And in fact, we're only discussing James as a leader. And we both agreed that we had huge respect for James as a leader. And that goes without saying. But as a manager, James was so supportive. And he always we always felt as though he had our back. It was really clear what our purpose was in the team and what we needed to do to support the organisation. And I guess the most important thing was that we felt empowered. You know, we had direction and that was given, but then we just had to get on with it and
3: we were left to get on with it. Thank you, Sharon. And uh, right back at you, I was uh, I was very lucky and honoured to have uh, you and uh, you and Vicky uh, in, in my team in, in those years at uh, Citrix. I very much enjoyed them. And uh I think we had a a wonderful team for all of the reasons that you that you outlined there good good sense of trust and and collaboration, and just feeling that like we were a, a real team and that we had a, um, a a mission and an opportunity to to drive success together.
2: Perhaps you could give us a potted history of your career in tech um, before we get into our topic today.
3: Um, I'm now at Cisco and I'm leading Cisco's marketing. Uh, for their cybersecurity business covering EMEA and Asia Pacific. Um, it's interesting, I was I was looking back at my career and remembering when I, uh, well, when I was a, a young boy, I wanted to be an airline pilot. And uh, then I realized that the subjects that I would have to study were not really the subjects that I was very good at or interested in. So uh, very often, your your dreams uh, don't end up being realized because practicalities get in the way. Um, yeah, I went to university and I studied uh, European history and languages, uh, still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went on to um, business school and uh, spent a year in Paris, a year in Oxford and a year in Berlin uh, with a variety of experience uh, with placements in different industries. And at the end of that, I pretty much decided that I wasn't going to go into technology and I of the three countries that I lived in uh, I thought Germany was the one that I wouldn't live in and I ended up in technology in Germany so it very often <laughs> is the case that what you think uh, is not going to be the outcome uh, ends up being being the outcome. Um, I went in tech uh, in the early 90s having done a placement there uh, in uh, product marketing which I thought was a really good a really good grounding for anyone in in marketing, because it's it's all about identifying customer needs, customer priorities, and then matching them with a with a solution and offering that uh, that will help customers achieve their objectives. So I, I think I was very fortunate in getting what I found was a really good uh, a really good grounding in in marketing. Then I I went on to digital, spent a couple of years there. Um, I got some sales experience, which I also have found very valuable at a startup called NetPower. Relatively short-lived, uh, they uh, they ended up uh, not succeeding with the the rhythm and sequencing of their investor capital, so they had to wind up. Um, and that's when I joined Citrix in the late nineties uh, in an alli- alliances and, and marketing roles. Um, and then I joined from there. I joined Sourcefire, uh, which was then subsequently acquired by Cisco in uh, two thousand and fourteen.
0: Great stuff, and See that's where mentioned. I still am some fantastic industry experience. Uh,
3: it's been great, yes. I mean, I, uh, um, having said that I didn't, I didn't want to, or at least I didn't think I would end up in technology, it's been, it's been fascinating because it's always evolving. Uh, it's always changing. Even if you end up uh, doing the same job for a while, your job changes very, very quickly because it is a very dynamic industry um, and also one that... Uh, is impossible. I think to get bored in because there's so much yeah. innovation. Uh, competition is pretty intense, um, and it's just a multifaceted industry to be in. And, and I and I wouldn't change that um, because I, I have um, I have become absolutely fascinated by it. And I think coming up through the marketing route rather than through the um, the technical route, it gives you a good perspective in terms of how technology can. Uh, help individuals and help businesses achieve their goals, yeah. um, and it also, I think, gives you an opportunity to be able to explain the value and benefit of technology to people that are uncomfortable with it, because you, you're, you're perhaps yeah. less inclined
0: to talk uh, bits and bytes and alienate yeah. your, your audience. You you talk from the outcome of the technology down to the bits and bytes rather than the other way, which is, is something that's that's quite important in the industry. I think we're too, we're often too keen to talk feeds and speeds. <laughs> Yes, I think that's right. Bad habits are uh, hard to get yeah. rid of. And yeah, I think it is absolutely. important
3: to talk about the, the impact and outcomes of technology rather than... I, rather I,
0: than I firmly, firmly agree. Funnily enough, I never expected or intended to have a career in tech. As I very much fell into the role at, at, at Softcap, um, having failed to be a rock star and uh, 20 or on, the, it's it's on the never rest of No, it's I'm still trying. Late. I'm still trying. I've even got a couple of auditions coming up soon. So... Uh, you never oh, know, you. coming soon to a stage, a stage near you. So Vicky, do you want to tell us why we're, why we're covering this particular topic today then perhaps?
1: Yeah, thank you. So um, if we think about who are, you know, it's interesting James saying about coming here to come an audience perspective. If we think about who are audiences at the Amplified Group, we are primarily focusing on, on tech startups. And those tech startups either are aspiring to be uh, a tech unicorn and then on to being a tech giant, or they're aspiring to be acquired by a tech giant. And so we are looking to cover both of those different routes. So we're looking to understand how James experienced being acquired by Cisco and and what his takeaways are that
0: that makes sense so James do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about the run-up to the acquisition a little bit about about the company that you were working for at the time and and how that transpired and how you got it to a point where where the acquisition happened really
3: um, happy to Sam so I joined, uh, I joined Sourcefire in 2012 um, to lead their international marketing. Uh, Sourcefire uh, was a, a pure cybersecurity company. Um, they, had, uh, they had already been around for about 10 years. Um, with um, modest growth, um, they were focused on intrusion prevention systems, so essentially identifying threats um, and blocking those threats. And the, the founder, Marty Resch, um, was the author of uh, the Snort open source code, uh, which is an intrusion prevention code, and um, he built a company around it. And uh, the time that I joined the company was looking to expand internationally, um, and it was uh, so I was there for a, a couple of years when when the acquisition was was announced. Um, the the company was growing well. Um, following a uh, few years of, of leadership uh, by John Burris, who had joined Sourcefire from, uh, from Citrix, and he was bringing focus, profitability, simplicity to to the company that at that stage, when he joined, uh, was simply trying to do too many things all at the same time. So he uh, he drove the company's uh, Growth phase, and um, significantly, uh, that was reflected in uh, in the in the company's uh, stock price, and it became a very attractive company uh, for organisations that were perhaps looking to ac- acquire uh, a cybersecurity company that uh, that had. Significant, um, significant opportunity, particularly in the in the threat detection and threat threat prevention Make, space.
0: Makes sense. Makes sense. So Cisco were trying to gear up in that space.
3: Yeah. So Cisco were very uh, very uh, interested and attracted by by Sourcefire because of its security DNA, um, because of its uh, technological um, capability in in that space. And Cisco recognised that if it was going to become um a tr- true technology leader uh, it needed to be a, a leader in the security space and while cisco had some security products it it wasn't seen as being a security leader um and sourcefire marked the beginning of a, a series of acquisitions okay. as well
0: as organic growth yeah, which in, we in saw, that space. Yeah. and it makes sense i guess from a, from a cisco strategy point of view both to augment the network and also to build that stuff into the network um it makes a lot of sense. The simplicity angle is interesting because the security industry is notorious for selling in quite a complex manner and very feeds and speeds. Um, you clearly think that made a big difference to Sourcefire? It uh, it really did. Um, before I
3: uh, joined, when when John Burris was appointed the, the CEO in the... Um, it was about 2008, 2009. He came in, he found a company that was... Uh, had a huge amount of potential, had great technology. Um, but, uh, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't as focused as it needed to be. And, um, uh, one of the things I admired and learned uh, a lot about from, from John as his time, uh, during his time at, at Citrix leading worldwide sales, and then subsequently at Sourcefire was he, um, he was always very focused on a very small number of, of things. And, uh, uh somebody somebody gave me a tip once when i was writing an email to john and they uh, they said to me uh john will will never scroll down on an email so <laughs> if you've got something Brilliant. to say makes make sure that you make sure that you make your point quickly in the email because if it's yeah. below the, the the screen below the the virtual fold as it were he, he will never read it and he applied that, that degree of simplicity when when he arrived at sourcefire and he identified Three priorities. One, driving profitability, so making sure yeah. that people in the company understood about the importance of managing expenses. Um, secondly, um, really pruning and focusing on, on the channel as a route, as a route to market. Uh, their channel strategy was, um, was, not, was not focused at the time. And then thirdly, international expansion to uh, give them a route to growth and remove their, their dependence on, on the business in the U.S. So he, he ruthlessly got the company to focus on those three areas um, and cut out an awful lot of other programs and initiatives that were underway. Um, and that ruthless focus led to uh, led to very clear success by by just ensuring that everybody in the company knew where they were going and was contributing to uh, to success in those in those three key
0: areas. <clears throat> that makes an awful lot of sense. That makes an awful lot of sense. I think that that approach is is underrated, especially in our uh, our sometimes over complex industry. I love the idea of the you must get it in into the first. Ten lines or whatever of the email, I think that that's just brilliant. It's like yeah, a good good. To the the, kid, the kids today would refer to that as TLDR. Vicky, you've got a little. Uh,
1: I have, yeah.
0: Snippet there. So.
1: so it's really interesting that that you talk about the fact that John Burris had three priorities, James, because we find with many of the clients that we work with, one of the main things that we need to do is help them understand that they're trying to do too many things. And actually, if, if you have more than three priorities, then you don't have a priority. And working with a leadership team to identify what is the most important thing that the organization needs to do. And if you can do that, and that everybody in the organization has the clarity that they know what the most important thing is, even if they're not working on that, that's not part of their job. They know that they mustn't do anything to stand in its way or to hold it back because that's when silos really start to kick in and and hold business up. So we are going to cover this, cover this in much more detail on another podcast, but it is just, it's, I think um, the art of simplicity by John Burris um, and you know, it's, was such a a loss that he's he's no longer on this earth but it's is such a it was such a thing for me certainly to to learn and I thought at the when I first saw him um working like that that there was no substance there but actually it was pure genius the simplicity that he, he brought so I think that's a, for me, was a. It
0: was the, the, the opposite is actually true in that he's, he was clearly yes. all substance and no fluff.
1: Yes, and knew exactly how to communicate it for people yeah. to remember it and be able to act on it, whether it rather than it getting lost in too many priorities. So, it's yeah.
0: Such a rare, rare skill. Yes, it is. So, James, what was your experience of going through the acquisition and, and becoming part of, of Cisco? In, in particular, was there a, a common vision between the organisations? How Sourcefire fitted into the Cisco strategy, and, and most importantly, seeing that through a customer lens. Uh,
3: there, there certainly was. Um, I mean, my my reaction when I heard about the um, the intended acquisition was, um, you know, first of all, I was. Um, I mean, you you always have at the back of your mind that if you know, if you're working for a a, a relatively small, fast-growing company um, that has proven to have solutions that the customers want. Um, Acquisition is always going to be uh, yeah. a possibility, and in, indeed, over it's never off the, the table. It's a, is a probability. Yes, it, it's just the timing. You you never quite uh, you, you never quite expect it on the day that it happens. So my yeah. you know my first reaction was um, was a bit of shock because I was I was really enjoying the time at Sourcefire. It was a company with a uh, with a great culture, um, really committed people, and just a great a great environment. Um, so the first reaction was shock. The, the second reaction was, well, if we're going to be acquired, uh, Cisco was about the best uh, company I could think of in terms of a cultural fit. Um, and I'd worked with Cisco when I was at, at Citrix. Um, I, I wouldn't say I knew the company well, but what I did know, um, I, I found uh, I, I had a very positive perspective on the company. I thought that culturally it had a good reputation and my interactions with people at at Cisco had always been positive. So my, my reaction was, well, if we're going to be acquired, Cisco is probably about the best company that that, that it could be. Um, but Cisco was a huge organization. At the time Sourcefire was acquired, it was around about 600 employees, and Cisco was around 75,000. So wow. it was an entirely different environment just in terms of, of scale and, and scope. But to answer your question, I would say that the uh, common vision was Cisco you know, had a had a, g- a great history, and was a very successful company focused on um, on networking technologies and recognized that it needed to in- invest in security and become known as being a leader in security and that was the DNA and the role that Sourcefire brought. Sourcefire was, uh, had a great deal of credibility in the security space. It was 100% focused on, on cybersecurity. And that formed the basis for <clears throat> what, was, what was going to be a good, a good partnership. Uh, so I think it was clear in terms of the objectives uh, from, from both sides.
0: And I guess like any acquisition or any coming together of, of two organizations, there were probably some good bits and some bad bits. Um, anything in there you'd do differently? Um, well, I'll start. I'll start with the positive, and I would say
3: that, um, and this I, I have to say was a, a very pleasant surprise. Cisco uh, treated the acquisition as um, as a partnership, so we didn't feel like an acquired company, even though obviously you know we were the acquired yeah. company. But we had a seat at the table, and we weren't given the, br- the blueprint for for the acquisition and the integration, and, and given our marching orders. Uh, the 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 integration plans were open, and uh, we really felt as if our voice was being heard. Certainly, I felt um, that uh, that I had a contribution to make in terms of ensuring that the the integration was was effective and successful. And I think that that open environment and the feeling that we were we were trusted um, and that our opinions were important uh, made a very big difference um, in terms of things that uh, that could have been. Uh, could have been done differently. I, I'm, I'm not sure that there's anything that, that Cisco could have done on this front, but the scale was certainly overwhelming. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I do remember my first two weeks being part of Cisco. Um, I, I, I accepted every meeting that I was invited to join. And um I spent two weeks in (laughs) a disaster, many of which I thought "I, I have absolutely no idea why I'm in this meeting. I don't really understand what the meeting is about and I don't think I have a role to play. Um but I thought that it was an important part of getting to know the organization that if I was invited to participate in the discussion I should join it and that would help me learn more about what was going on. But um, because of this, because of the size of Cisco, it does carry a lot of complexity, and you do yeah. n- very quickly realize that you need to be good at saying uh, no politely, yeah. and not turning up to meetings for the sake of it. Um, and really, you know, coming back to uh, focus, prioritization, and simplicity, understanding what your role is, and what the objectives are, and being pretty ruthless at uh, just not allowing yourself to get caught up in the the whirlwind of activity that is ine- yeah. inevitably part of life at, at Cisco.
0: There's an ex- there's an expression about it being too easy to be a busy fool in that sort of scenario, isn't there? Just, you know, be- being busy for the sake of being busy rather than necessarily being effective. Yeah, very much so. You can get to the end
3: of the week and think, wow, I've been so busy this week, I haven't had an hour to spare, yeah. yet what have I actually achieved? Um, and certainly that's something that I, uh, that I do myself and encourage my, my teams to do is to... Uh, take a step back and think. Well, you know, I'm I'm busy, but I'm am I being busy and productive? Yes. Am I focused on on the objectives um, that we want to achieve? Um, and I, I always say to my teams, you know, don't ever attend a meeting because you feel that you ought to be there. Attend a yes, meeting definitely. if you've got a, a, a contribution to make. And if you yes. missed something that did have something important, you'll you'll find out about it afterwards. Um, D- but it's so us. easy to get caught up in in in, in activity that doesn't necessarily. Yeah help you achieve the the end judge, goal. Judge
0: yourself and your team on output rather than input. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. So h- how did you keep up your momentum post acquisition because often when you're in a you know as, as you said earlier a, a slightly smaller organization I bet 600 people is a good size. You know, you're you're almost striving for that moment where you get acquired or you get sold or you get floated or something like that. How how do you maintain your momentum after that date?
3: What uh, what Cisco does quite well um, is it it treats every acquisition differently. It doesn't. It, as I mentioned earlier on, it doesn't. It doesn't sort of give you this blueprint and say, right, yeah, you know, this is the timeline. This is how we're going to integrate. It, it gave us as the acquired company a lot of flexibility in terms of um, how we wanted to integrate with various different groups within Cisco and and to do so at our pace so for about uh, certainly for the first two years uh, we were largely operating at at arm's length from uh, a lot of Cisco's organizational aspects so we had a ring-fenced budget we had uh, we we maintained to a large extent the the structure um, that we had at Sourcefire and and part of the benefit of being acquired at that stage of, of Cisco's uh, evolution into into security, um, Cisco didn't have many of the functions that we had, so we kind of became the security business and organisation within uh, within Cisco, and we had our um, our goals and objectives that we had to meet in in financial terms as well as in ter- in terms of the, um, the 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 growth of, of the business. We were empowered and we were trusted to get on and drive our business, and and for us to look at areas of opportunity to work more closely with Cisco, but in a in a phased way rather than suddenly being swallowed up by a mass uh, a mass organisation.
0: And that trust thing is really really important. I mean, you, you you drop that in there, but that's pretty critical, Ricky. I think you guys have done some work on 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 trust in that context, haven't you?
1: We have actually not quite in terms of going through an acquisition, but certainly we ran an IT leaders survey last year where we surveyed 200 individuals in organizations from startups through to tech giants like Microsoft, IBM, Cisco, HP. And we, we asked five very simple questions. And those questions were, are you inspired and empowered? Is loyalty rewarded? Um, there's trust and belief that the best idea wins failure and mistakes are treated as lessons and you have purpose and fulfillment and you feel valued and we just measured those five questions against the size of the company that's the number of employees and the age of the company so therefore we were able to see how organizations have been able to scale and what 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 really very clearly came out of that was the strong correlation between the age and size of company and the trust in the organization. So organizations that had a high trust culture were able to scale and grow. And, and what was also really interesting was to look at it against the technology that they had. So it doesn't matter how great the technology is. If you haven't got trust and empowerment, yeah in the organization if you're not empowering or those those employees in the organization so that next level down from the leaders and the founders if they hadn't been able to do that then the organizations hadn't been able to grow and they were stagnating i think is probably a good way of, of, of describing it and i just want to say is a as an example of empowerment i remember when i first worked for james um working in the alliances role james used I said, so which alliances am I going to go and look after? And you said, you need to go and find the ones that are going to go and make the most difference for us. And you totally trusted me to go and do that work. And I came back and went, I think we need to go work with Microsoft.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I guess you might have been right.
1: Yes, I think so. But that was a great example of having that clean sheet of paper and having that trust to know that I needed to go and do the right thing.
0: Com- comes back to the simplicity thing as well, doesn't it? You know, you've it got does. a direction of travel. Everybody's pulling in the same direction. Uh, as a, a manager or a leader, give your people direction and then get out of their way.
1: Yes, and James is very good at that.
3: Fantastic.
0: <laughs> well, George, I think it's
3: you? it's human nature, isn't it? I mean, you if you're we spend a lot of time um, with uh, with work in our lives, and uh, if you can if you can give people within your team, the feeling that you know, you're not giving them a set of instructions, but you're allowing them to shape uh, the future, not only of what, what, they're, what they're focused on, but helping them to feel that they have an important role. They're really making a difference within the organization. You'll get, uh, you'll get a huge amount of energy um, and a huge amount of creativity um, from, from people that you're working with. So I think that, uh, that sense of empowerment um, and, the, and the sense of trust but importantly in that is 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 always supporting your team, because if you give them that degree of flexibility, you've got to make sure that you support them when when things don't work out well and they won't always work out well. Um, and And I think that you've got to ensure that your teams feel that you will you will support them um, and that you in turn will be supported uh, where where needed, because I think when things don't work out that well, you actually end up learning an awful lot more than when things work absolutely perfectly, which, of course, they, they rarely do. But I think there's as much to be learned from, from things that uh, are, are not as successful as you would wish as, as initiatives that, that do prove to be successful.
1: I, I agree with that. And actually, the one, you know, as I said, one of the questions that we asked in our survey was about failure and mistakes being treated as lessons. And that actually mm. scored the lowest of all of the questions that we asked. And I think there's a lesson to be learned yeah but and you know i think it's it's also a, a good time to to talk about trust in the way that we define it or actually lencioni describes it and the way you've just talked about it james so we haven't used the same words but actually it's how we would describe it which is vulnerability based trust versus um Trust in the way that people tend to think of it in business, which is predictive trust. And predictive trust is, I know Vicky's going to come and she's going to deliver this because she's done that in the past, or she's going to turn up for this call on time because this is what she's done in the past. So I can predict that behavior. When we talk about vulnerability-based trust, it means it's a safe place that you can say what you really think, that you can be unguarded, that you can say, do you know what? I'm not actually very good at that. Can you help me? or I've made a mistake and, and feel it's safe enough to be able to say I've made, made that mistake. So, so that's how we really define trust. And, you know, that's the environment that you've just described brilliantly there without even using the language that we've just talked about.
3: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think an important, um, an important part of that is encouraging uh, your teams to openly share Uh, what they would consider I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily term term it failure but um, whenever we have uh, review meetings um, of course we focus on successes and what were the keys behind that success and how can we replicate that success but also encouraging team members to give examples of things that were not successful um, and to learn uh, from that experience as well so if something didn't succeed um, why didn't it su- succeed, what can we learn from that, um, and, and how can we ensure that we are um, learning from each other's lack of success so that we don't, we don't make the same mistakes inadvertently. And I think doing that in a safe, trusted environment, um, if you can make that the norm, then people are quite happy to talk about things that didn't work out because they know that it's actually part of the learning experience and they're contributing by sharing the initiatives that they're not proud of because they didn't work they didn't work out the way uh, that they wanted them to but they can then feel proud that they were brave enough to then share it and that in turn will have a positive impact on um, on, on the on the organization and on the business
0: it's not a failure it's experimentation and innovation much much nice. more positive <laughs> ways to describe it yeah absolutely yeah, sam what well yeah, i said it makes sense um so you're at Cisco now what would you three takeaways be in your opinion of a successful acquisition what would your advice be for companies either acquiring or or being acquired into a larger organization
3: um well definitely i would say alignment of cultures um, because you can you can acquire a company for technology but if the cultures of the organizations don't match then it's going yeah. to be very very hard to 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 get the the acquisition to be effective and and that's certainly something that uh, that Cisco knows extremely well um, and and I think the, the the good thing about the way that Cisco approaches acquisitions is that it knows that each one is going to be different um, but making sure that that culture fit exists before they even agree uh, to uh, to a partnership is is pretty important. Um, and uh, partnership is is the second aspect, I would say. Uh, if you want an acquisition to be effective, you've got to embrace the company that you're inquiring and and, and make them feel welcome. And don't assume you've got all of the answers because by definition, if, it, if it's going to be an effective integration, it needs to be a two-way partnership. And you're acquiring a company, uh, not just because of the technology, but it, even if technology is the primary driver the people within that organization are the ones that created that technology. So if you want that technology to, uh, to succeed, you're going to need them to be, uh, Absolutely. To be partners. So um, ensuring that there's a, a real culture of partnership where they have a seat at the table um, and they can feel that they've got skin in the game uh, is, is critical. Um, and then the third one is um, uh, is ensuring that the, the integration uh, is multifaceted across each function and that each function has a designated uh, integration owner uh, who feels that they've got uh, skin in the game that they have responsibility to uh, raise concerns and that they are uh, at the uh, at the they they've got a, a driving role to play in ensuring the success of the integration so not just treating it as one company, but looking at the individual functions within that company uh, and ensuring that there is um, representation at each level. To wrap that all up, I'd say, you know, keeping an open mind as well. Um, you've got to constantly look at ways to to be agile during that process. You may have developed a plan. You need to be open to uh, adjusting the speed at which yeah. the acquisition integration takes, takes place. Great, James,
0: that was brilliant. Thank you, really, really good. Um, so, show you, we're going to do the hero. Yes, yeah, certainly. So it's something we introduced on the podcast that we really like. Um, our
2: brand identity at the Amplified Group is a little stick man, and we we named him Hero. So we thought it'd be really nice to ask our guests. At who their hero was and this could be anybody from a motivational speaker somebody that you've always admired or even somebody just as simple as the guy that served you your first cup of coffee to get you going in the morning so with that James sorry to put you on the spot but maybe you could tell us who your hero is. Uh,
3: yes uh, Sharon it's a it's a difficult one um, because of course yeah all of us have so many influences during during our lives um but i i um i will talk about my dad um and and the reason for that is that i learned a lot from from him uh from a from a uh fr- from a personal perspective and also from a business perspective even though our careers have been completely different so um my dad was a fighter pilot in the royal wow. air force and then he um, he went into commercial aviation um, as an airline pilot um, and then to, towards uh, the, the latter part of his career, he was a, a training pilot and um, one of the things that i was I was extremely lucky during my childhood that i uh, got to fly with my dad um, a lot in the days when um, there was a lot more flexibility. I could literally uh, go to the airport with my dad during the school holidays uh, without a ticket. I would just be the captain's son. And uh, as long as my dad vouched for me, you know, I could go wherever he, he went. Um, wow, what an experience. It, w- oh, it was fantastic. So I, I spent so uh, much time during my childhood in, in the cockpit uh, right behind my dad. And uh, yeah, I I loved it. I found it fascinating. And um, one of the things that struck me was how calm uh, my dad always was, even uh, in moments of duress. I remember when we were uh, taking off from Barbados to come back to London and there was um, an engine fire. And so there were all these alarms going off in the flight deck. And I was watching my dad and in what was obviously quite a stressful environment, his ability to stay calm and just uh, look at the situation and deal with the situation, as well as working effectively with, uh, with his team, the other two members of the, of the flight crew, the first officer and the, and the flight engineer, and validating what they were doing together Um, as opposed to him having all of the answers. So constantly checking what they were doing, talking openly about the steps that they were taking, and not once during that uh, occasion was there. did I mean, I knew my dad obviously very well, and what struck me was that uh, I could tell in the way that he was behaving and in his voice that he was indeed calm, um, and everything was in control. So there wasn't I found the experience extremely exciting, but not once was was I afraid because I could see that there was this calmness and professionalism uh, with the with uh, amongst the flight crew. And that, uh, I think, rubbed off on me in the sense that when uh, when I'm in a stressful environment, I, 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 I always try and stay calm. Um, because it actually doesn't help if you get it doesn't help if you clap, get stressed doesn't. and yeah you're you're just flaming the flaming the the the, the, the fire um, so always staying calm even in an environment that is uh, innately stressful is something that uh, that I that I learned from him and and I always try and replicate even if uh, if I'm, i may not always be as successful as I would like so um, yeah that uh, that would be that would be the reason for choosing him as as my hero.
1: James that that insight means an awful lot to me because I absolutely can acknowledge the fact that you are very calm as a leader absolutely I've worked for you for many many years you always even when there was a a panic or there was a a fire drill as we as we like (laughs) a
0: metaphorical engine Uh, fire yes
1: um you always seem very calm in control and you know you do definitely look up to people like that so that was a great insight thank you james for sharing that with us i really appreciate it so um with that i'm going to hand back to to sam to to close us off for for the day
0: i do find myself wondering if any of those moments of duress in the cockpit were due to having a small boy fiddling around with the controls in (laughs) there (laughs) <laughs> You've left
1: that bit
3: out of the story. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. Uh, I did always. Um, I probably drove my father uh, to frustration because I would. I was always impressed by how many dials and buttons yes. and switches there were in the flight deck, and I thought there's no way that anyone could possibly remember what each of those buttons and dials do. So when we were uh, spending many hours crossing the Atlantic, I would randomly pick a button and say to my dad, "What does that one do? <laughs> what would happen if I pressed it?" And he, would have, he would always have an answer. Yeah, maybe you it, take it
0: up, James. <laughs> well, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Thanks, James. That that was absolutely really, really appreciate your insight. I think that was just just fantastic. You got a wealth of experience there, and and clearly much loved by by Sean and Vicky for your your time with them. So we really appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Very good of you to to spend the time with us. Uh, And to everybody out there, thanks for listening to Get Amplified from the Amplified group. If you liked it, please be sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.